Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. This is the 100th episode of this show, if you can believe it, which I have to admit I really can't. I'm thrilled to be recording episode number 100. The show's been on since uh, the beginning of 2007, although there was about a, a six-month hiatus there toward the end of maybe 2008 and the beginning of 2009. But it's back and going strong, and uh, it's just been an, an absolute thrill for me. Uh, the show has allowed me to talk, continue talking uh, with many of the people uh, whose work I respect most in the world. And I've even gotten some pretty great uh, experiences, you know, hanging out in Steve Kuhn's kitchen and Dom Manassi's dining room and, uh, you know, the lobby of Vijay Iyer's apartment building and, uh, I don't know, just all yeah, Yoris Tepe's backyard, all kinds of interesting places uh, that I never really thought I would end up talking with people who uh, create some really beautiful and engaging and thought-provoking music, and uh, I, I couldn't be happier. This show is going to be um, a little bit freeform, and it's going to revolve around uh, one person, and that's my grandfather, uh, Bernard Oren Joseph Flanders, Bernie Flanders. Uh, he he died um, earlier this year uh, at the age of 96, and uh, I named uh, my wife and I, we named our son, our older son, Bernie, after him. And he is the person uh, uh, to whom you can give credit or on whom you can lay the blame for my interest in this music. Uh, my grandfather uh, was a saxophone player and a clarinet player and for a while played in, I guess, kind of a semi-professional uh, dance band in uh, western Massachusetts in the Pittsfield area where he was from and where I just, uh, you know, bringing it full circle, just finished interviewing uh, members of the industrial jazz group who play music uh, very different from what my, my grandfather played, uh, but certainly in the same spirit. And my grandfather was a huge lover of music his entire his entire life. Um, he was a very quiet guy, and in many ways you had to you had to spend an extended amount of time with him to really see too much underneath the surface. And I'm not sure that if that ever really happened in the years that I knew him, but he uh, was certainly one of uh, my heroes and uh, one of the people uh, after whom. Uh, I've patterned myself uh, to the best of my ability and uh, just an amazing, amazing human being. So I thought what I would do is uh, is play for you on the show just some, some music that he liked and talk a little bit about him and uh, some of my musical experiences uh, with him and uh, just kind of see what happens. I'm going to start off uh, with a tune called The Peanut Vendor. This is from a Stan Kenton album called Kenton and Hi-Fi. My grandfather had uh, had a decent vinyl collection, uh, a lot of big band stuff, and a lot of the kind of like Stephen Eady type singers and, and people like that. And wh- when I was a kid, my grandparents uh, in Lenox, Massachusetts, they had uh, one of those big, you know, console sets that had inside a radio and a, a turntable, and from the outside was a big, you know, credenza, a big piece of furniture. Well, I won't lie, I spent a lot of time playing superhero uh, read-along records 
on that record set. Uh, but I did spend a fair amount of time listening to my grandfather's music. Um, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents when I was a kid, and I um, spent a ton of time in the car with my grandfather. And I always remember, you know, hearing the music of your life type stations. And um, so I really grew up, you know, listening to Nat King Cole and to big band music and really didn't get into rock music or, you know, anything kind of outside of that world with any kind of passion until I was in high school and, and met a group of friends, you know, who had those interests. But my grandfather's music was was very instrumental uh, in my upbringing. And anyway, to go back to this Kenton record, he had this album, uh, Kenton in Hi-Fi, uh, on vinyl, and I actually I have his vinyl now, but I'm, the copy I'm going to play you is off a CD. And uh, normally, uh, on a professional radio show, the uh, the host would already have done things like get the music out and stuff like that. But you know me, right? We're we're friends now because it's been a hundred episodes. Uh, so I, I'm not nearly I'm not nearly that prepared. I just went and grabbed a stack of stuff, and I figured I would dig through it. And uh, and f- to find the things that that said something about him, this Kenton and Hi-Fi record, this is definitely one of the formative formative records for me. This has a lot of the classics: Artistry Jumps, uh, Painted Rhythm, uh, Minor Riff, Peanut Vendor, uh, Artistry and Boogie, Unison Riff, uh, Artistry and Rhythm. A lot of those classic tunes, kind of taking advantage of better recording technology. Um, and they released this LP that just the sound is killer. Everything about it. Uh, the trumpet sections are ridiculous. Uh, the band sounds unbelievable. And on this um, on this tune, the Peanut Vendor, you know, which is a classic Latin tune. You, you probably uh, you probably know the name. You're going to hear uh, uh, Vito Musso on here uh, on the saxophone. You're also going to hear uh, uh, Milt Bernhardt on the trombone. And I think I think Stan gets a piece of this too on the piano. And around this time, let's see who was in this rhythm or this uh, this trumpet section when this album was recorded. Yeah, so this is Maynard Ferguson, uh, Pete Candoli, Sam Noto, uh, Ed Letty, Vinnie Tano, and Don Palladino was the trumpet section. And one of the things about this record, well, actually, you know what? I'm going to tell you this other piece about the record after we hear it. So let's check out the Peanut Vendor real quick. Uh, this is Stan Kenton from the album Kenton and High Fly. <laughs> Thank you. 
right? So that's crazy. Uh, those the, tra- <laughs> the trumpet parts, the trumpet parts are insane. And I'm gonna I'm not, I'm gonna be honest with you here for a second. I didn't actually just hear the Peanut Vendor because I'm gonna put all the music in after I record the show. But I know this album so well uh, that if I were talented enough to be able to write orchestrations, I could write the whole thing note for note. Um, I can sing everybody's part all the way through, and there are very few records uh, that that is true for, and most of the other ones are kind of like in the prog rock world. Um, But this is one of those records that is in my DNA. But, you know, the thing about it is, uh, when I first was listening to this on vinyl, and then, you know, later, this is, I'm sure, one of the first CDs I ever bought. When I was first listening to this record, it never really occurred to me that the people who made that music were like actual kind of living and breathing human beings with whom it would be possible to converse, you know, in any way. Uh, they, I, didn't, I had no idea how records, you know, were made. I mean, I was a little kid. I was probably five when I first heard this record or four when I first heard this record. And, you know, it was just m- magic. It was just music that just came out of nowhere. You had no idea uh, how it was created. And it's these incredible sounds that you could really, you couldn't imagine putting yourself in the same the same space as and years later uh, as it turned out I ended up interviewing Maynard Ferguson and Maynard plays you know in the trumpet section on the tune that we just heard and it it's so amazing to me that uh, I mean I think I interviewed Maynard when I was probably maybe 30 and so 25 years after I first heard this record um and, you know, became so just amazed with this music uh, that my grandfather had uh, that I actually had a chance to speak to someone who was on, you know, this this very album. And I think the seeds of, you know, who I was to become and, and what I would choose to focus on uh, in my life were planted very early inside that, that big white credenza that my grandparents had. So it really just a, just a ridiculous record. My grandfather had a um, had a talent that I don't have. He had many talents that I don't have. Most of them artistic, but he um, uh, and he had patience. I don't have any of that. But he had a talent that I don't have uh, related to music, which is that my grandfather could hear like three notes of any tune recorded in the era in which he was listening to music, and just instantly tell you exactly which big band it was, who all the featured soloists were. I can't do that. I can't do that with a lot of the music I've listened to a million times. I can pick out John Coltrane's saxophone sound. But uh, since we're in this tell-all mode, I will tell you that if I ever did a downbeat blindfold test, I would fail it. Maybe if it was singers, (laughs) I could do it. But uh, there's no way if you played me five piano trio recordings, I could tell you who the five were, unless it was something I just was that familiar with. Um, But I I don't have any skill in that particular area, and my grandfather was great at it. Um, And he had some pretty strong opinions, too, about, um, you know, which musicians he liked more than others. And he was a big fan of of clarinet players. So I want to play you a tune. um, Now, this is from uh, Artie Shaw. And this is another one of those crazy things where... Uh, you know, when I first heard music by Artie Shaw, um, primarily on these Music of Your Life stations, you know, that my, my grandfather would, would have on in the car, I was a clarinet player starting in about seventh grade, and my grandfather would often drive me to my lessons and that kind of thing. And, you know, we would hear this music, and I was really amazed by, um, you know, the virtuosity. And uh, I'm going to play a tune that Artie Shaw actually hates, and then I'm going to tell you a quick story about Artie Shaw afterward. But, uh, This is just a classic. This is the thing you would hear um, on the radio. Artie Shaw. (laughs) 
you know, so that, of course, uh, is uh, Begin the Begin, and uh, from all accounts, Artie Shaw hated that tune. There's another Artie Shaw tune I could have played you uh, that has just as strong a connection uh, with my grandfather, and that's Artie Shaw's theme song, Nightmare. My grandfather, uh, his favorite band um, was Glenn Gray's uh, Casaloma Orchestra. And originally, Glenn Gray's Casaloma Orchestra, it kind of had a couple iterations. I think the, the version of it that my grandfather liked the most was the one in, a, I would say, like the 50s and 60s, late 50s and early 60s, where the main thing that uh, Glenn's band did was recreate the sound of other people's bands. And they put out all these records where I think there were like 10 volumes where Glenn Gray's band just played all the old theme songs of the you know other bands. So for example, they played Artie Shaw's Nightmare and they would sound exactly like those bands. And they were, you know, remarkable at being able to to do this. And and Glenn Gray would hire, you know, many of the great soloists. I mean, he had guys from everybody's band pass through his band at one time or another. But where Artie Shaw's concerned, you know, so I I grew up listening um, to Artie Shaw and when I was uh, a station manager at uh, Jazz 90.1 in in Rochester, New York, I met Marion McPartland. And Marion McPartland, who was recently on the jazz session, by the way, Marion McPartland said to me that she had a friend uh, out on the West Coast who had done a 13-hour audio documentary uh, intended for radio about Artie Shaw and comprising a fair number of hours of interviews uh, with Artie. He couldn't find this guy, this friend of hers, he couldn't find anybody to broadcast this thing. For one thing, it was 13 hours long. And... You know, for another thing, it was about Artie Shaw. Artie Shaw's music is not, is not, shall we say, current. So uh, I said I would, because how could you turn down Marion McPartland? If she tells you to broadcast 13 hours of the sound of a door slamming, you'd probably do it. So I said, sure, we'll do it. And, uh, and we played the whole 13 hours on Jazz 90.1 over the course of, I think, 13 weeks. And in the middle of that time, I got a letter from Artie Shaw, uh, maybe about a paragraph long, typed on a typewriter and signed by him uh, just, you know, thanking me for playing it and for, you know, having interest in his music. And it might have closed with something like keep on trucking, though that would seem unlikely, wouldn't it? Maybe it said keep on keeping on or something. The letter is packed away uh, now, so otherwise I would read it to you. But, uh, but in any case, that was another of those moments where, you know, this piece of my of my DNA, this this sound that was as familiar to me as any other kind of sound uh, because of the environment you know that my grandfather created where that intersected with uh, my professional life and kind of became real uh, in a way that was never the case when I was listening to it with my grandfather where it was not real it was magical it was it was beyond real kind of hyper real and so uh, you know I really I really valued that I didn't really have any personal contact with Artie other than you know, I got this letter from him, uh, and I think I might have gotten the letter from him because I sent him one, a note first, just saying, "Hey, I wanted to let you know that we're we're featuring 13 hours about you on our radio station." I can't remember how that worked. So uh, let's hear another tune. Um, I'll play for you a little bit of Duke Ellington. My grandfather and my grandmother, uh, at one point in their lives, were were very fond of dancing, and uh, there was a place called the Crystal Ballroom where they lived uh, near Pittsfield that all of the big bands would come to, all of the name bands. And I think they saw, you know, all of them at one time or another. And so I'll play you a little Duke Ellington from uh, around the era when my 
my grandparents would have been doing some of their dancing. This is from his uh, his Blanton Webster band, which was between 40 and 42, I think, when both uh, Jimmy Blanton and Ben Webster were in the band. So here's some Duke Ellington for you. You know, there's no there's no rare tracks on today's show. That, of course, is Take the A-Train, you know, straight out of the famous hits of the big bands, you know, every compilation CD ever made from the uh, from the Blanton-Webster years. Uh, that's actually from a really good three-CD box set, by the way, called Never No Lament, which collects um, remastered versions of all the Blanton-Webster performances. As I mentioned, uh, I was a clarinet player. Originally, I became a saxophone player eventually, and... Uh, for years, and I've actually I've lost it now, which uh, I really regret. Uh, it's been, this thing has been lost for years. But for years, I carried in my in my wallet uh, a picture of my grandfather's metal clarinet and soprano saxophone, and I believe an alto saxophone, sitting on stands next to one another. And I, I had that thing in my wallet forever. It was just a wallet-sized photo of his horns. I'm not really even sure why someone would make a wallet-sized photo of their horns. Uh, but my grandfather had one, and uh, and I carried it around with me forever and you know, used to really just enjoy looking at it and thinking about him playing. And years later, um, I came across a picture of the band that my grandfather uh, played in, which I believe will be up at the jazz session if you want to go. Uh, check it out in the uh, the show notes for this episode. And my grandfather is, uh, you know, dressed in a very uh, dapper fashion, and you know, the band looks kind of like you would expect that they would look. I don't know a ton about the kind of music that they played. I'm not sure why, but we just never really had that conversation. My grandfather would sometimes talk about playing, but more often he would talk about the act of listening to music. Um, and in some ways, our lives uh, are not dissimilar in that way because I made my living much more than my grandfather ever did. But I made my living for a number of years, uh, you know, playing the saxophone. But now I just talk about it or talk really more about musicians um, and other people making music. And I don't really uh, making the music is not part of what I do anymore. Uh, 
And so he and I, I think we had, you know, a fair amount in common in that sense that we both loved listening to the radio and, um, you know, really kind of engaging with the music that way. Another record that was in his collection was, um, I'm pretty sure, by a quartet uh, led by a drummer named Jack Stewart. And it was recorded live. Part of it was recorded live at Miss Hall's school, which is a, a private school in the Berkshires. And the other half of it was recorded live, I think, at a restaurant. And I'm sure this thing has never been reissued on CD. For all I know, there were like 100 vanity copies of it made. I have no idea. I don't really know anything about Jack Stewart, and I've, it's never occurred to me to look him up. But a lot of the repertoire of this band was uh, drawn from the Dave Brubeck band, and uh, particularly on this particular record from uh, Brubeck's Time Out album, which I imagine dates uh, Jack Stewart's record to the you know the late, very late 50s, or the, the end of the 50s or the very early 60s. So uh, let's hear a, a tune from that uh, that Brubeck ensemble uh, from the Time Out record. This is the Dave Brubeck Quartet. Okay, so there was one that wasn't actually the most famous hit on that album, which, of, of course, is Take 5. That was Three to Get Ready, which uh, was one of the tunes on that Jack Stewart record, which I've always loved. There's just something about that sound. The Stewart band really did a great job reproducing that sound, and their alto saxophone player was extremely talented. I have no idea who it was anymore. But, uh, you know, it's Paul Desmond's act is a hard one to follow. In fact, I don't think anyone has ever followed it. Um, and so it was a challenge. It was a pretty gutsy move, you know, to take on that repertoire. But uh, Stewart's band did a great job, and obviously uh, there's nothing like the real thing. My grandfather and grandmother um, spent a lot of time watching Lawrence Welk. And actually, in a recent issue of The Believer, the magazine put out by McSweeney's, the thing run by Dave Eggers, uh, there was a, a pretty fascinating article about Lawrence Welk and the the world that he created. My grandparents, as they got older, they really didn't have friends. I mean, by the time I was born, I guess my grandfather was in his early 60s or something. Let's see. He died when he was 96, and I'm 36. Uh, so yes, he was about 60 when I was born. And uh, he worked for General Electric. He worked there for 48 years. He never took a sick day in 48 years. 
I think I've taken 48 sick days so far this year. Uh, but he never took a sick day. He worked for GE in Pittsfield. Uh, he was a documentation analyst, which meant that other people would draft up plans for various things, and my grandfather would check them to make sure, I guess, that you know they wouldn't explode and that kind of thing. Um, he uh, he did not serve in World War II, and the reason that he didn't serve in World War II, or he wasn't in the military, I should say, in World War II, was because uh, GE, even then, was a big defense contractor, and my grandfather was working on uh, defense projects. Uh, I know some of the things that he worked on included a cutoff switch for the tail guns of large bombers so that when the tail gunner swept uh, his fire, you know, across the back of the plane, he wouldn't blow the tail off the plane that he was actually in. And my my grandpa also worked on um, some sort of gyroscope device so that when a tank uh, drove across bumpy ground, it was easier to keep its sights uh, level and fire more accurately. And he also worked on, I think, I'm going to say it was the Polaris missile project. It, I think it was the Polaris missile. He, I have, um, again, packed away because uh, a lot of those kinds of things we haven't unpacked since we moved here to Albany a couple years ago, or a year and a half ago. But uh, my grandfather has a document from the Department of Defense thanking him for his work. Um, on, I'm going to again say the Polaris Missile Project. But anyway, around that time when he was still working and my grandmother was working, she um, was a receptionist in a beauty salon at England Brothers in Pittsfield. Very elegant woman. Uh, they, you know, they had some friends, uh, people that they would hang out with. And, uh, you know, my grandfather would, would golf with my great uncle Jack. And he, they had some other, you know, some other pals. But as they got older, particularly after my grandpa retired and my, my grandmother no longer worked uh, either, they really, they kind of closed in and focused on their family. And they really didn't have any friends anymore at all. I mean, they never went out and socialized, ever, that I can ever remember, uh, with the exception of family events. And so they watched a ton of television. And my grandfather listened to a lot of radio. My grandmother didn't didn't care so much for the radio, but my uh, but my grandpa would, <laughs> for a variety of reasons, sit in his own room and wherever they lived, he always had his own room, not necessarily his own bedroom, although I believe that was the case also. But I mean, just his own space in the house that he would be in, or the apartment, I should say, because they, after the early forties, they never owned a house again; they always rented. And uh, he always had some space, and there'd be a few, th- you know, there'd always be some kind of chair. And there'd be a you know a lamp next to it and a radio and a television in whatever room he was in. So it was you know the Price is Right and Wheel of Fortune you know that whole thing Jeopardy. Uh, though I don't know why my grandmother watched Jeopardy, because <laughs> I don't know she she eschewed learning in the, that kind of way a kind of way that would have been useful on Jeopardy, but she watched it anyway. Um, he always had this room. There was always a radio, and uh, you know all, always the music of your life type station playing, always big band music going on back in the room. And um, in later years, we would buy him cassettes and then CDs of big band music. And he would sometimes listen to those too, although I think he was still always partial to the radio if he could if he could get his kind of music on it. I think a large part of my, you know, my real passion for radio came from him too. Uh, and that idea of just being, you know, kind of in your own, your own space, your own environment. But anyway, one of the things he spent a lot of time Watching was uh, the Lawrence Welk show. I mean, just he knew everybody in the Lawrence Welk show, and uh, Lawrence Welk and that that kind of fictional world that Lawrence Welk created. You know, where where everything is 
perfect. Um, I think was very attractive to my grandparents, who were definitely the kind of people who believed it had been better than it now was. And so um, one of the people who was, uh, I'm not sure, I can't remember if he ever actually was a member of the Welk Band or if he was just a frequent guest, but was the clarinetist Pete Fountain, um, uh, who from New Orleans. And uh, I would look at Pete Fountain very differently if I were introduced to him now because I have a, a at least an emotional connection to New Orleans that I, I did not have when I was growing up. But Pete Fountain's music was very important to me. And uh, very early on, when I first started buying any kind of my own music, I bought some cassettes of Pete Fountain and was a, a huge, huge fan of his. But even cooler than that was the fact that the first concert I ever went to was at least the first one I have any conscious memory of. Um, I'm, I don't know how old I was. I might have even been a preteen at this point. But my grandfather took me to see a double bill of Pete Fountain and Al Hurt, you know, two... New Orleans Giants of a particular kind. Um, and so let's hear a little Pete Fountain. So there's a little bit of the uh, of the clarinet of Pete Fountain. My grandpa had a lot of uh, a lot of other talents, a lot of artistic talents. He was a, a great painter, and uh, he did woodworking, you know, carving, and also making things out of wood. Uh, in the house that my parents lived in for 25 years, my grandfather made all the doors, for example, all the interior doors, and he uh, he painted scrimshaws. Uh, or did whatever the appropriate verb is with scrimshaws, uh, you know, pictures in ivory until uh, until it became illegal to purchase ivory. Uh, I mean, he painted everything. He, I, I've seen rocks that he painted, seashells that he painted, and in every house, you know, in our family, there are, there's, are examples of my grandfather's artwork. And he also, uh, he did cross-stitch, which is not uh, a predominantly male activity, I think, and if I get this story wrong, my mom doesn't have her own show, so she won't be able to correct me, but um, I think the deal is that my mom, who was a big cross-stitcher at one point, I'm going to say that that point was in the 80s mostly, that my mom at some point needed something finished that she didn't have time to finish herself, 
probably for a holiday or someone's birthday or something. And I think she gave it to my grandfather and said, can you figure out how to finish this? And uh, he and he got hooked on it. And, I mean, into his 90s, uh, he was doing cross-stitch, which is really fine work. If you don't know what cross-stitch is, and I don't either, but it's it's some kind of, you know, you create pictures on fabric using these sets of very tiny stitches in the shape of an X. You know, you get a, a piece of fabric with a bazillion tiny holes in it, and you have very thin thread, and you make these X's, which I think is where the cross part comes. You make these X's, and you make a picture out of all these different colors of thread. And if you ever get a chance to see, you can probably go look online and see what a cross-stitch pattern looks like. They're ridiculous. I mean, you know, it would make a hawk go blind. And my grandfather, into his 90s, would have, you know, his chair, his radio, his TV, his lamp. And he had, for several decades, these glasses. Uh, I assume they're, well, they're for any kind of fine work. Not not glasses so much as, like, these goggles, like this big metal band that you set down on your head and these this huge pair of goggles, you know, lowered down over your eyes and you could do, you know, watch repair or jewelry work or whatever and my grandfather did did cross stitch he cross stitched for me once a picture of an ostrich really the hind end of an ostrich and its head in the sand that said of all the things I've lost I miss my mind the most and he cross stitched uh, the letter J the first letter of my name um, which I still have I still have the the ostrich too he cross stitched uh, reproductions of Norman Rockwell uh, particularly the one with the the cop and the kid in the cafe and uh, that's in the boys room so uh, my grandfather's I really like the fact that his artwork is kind of everywhere that it, it's just a natural part of growing up in our family that you see that first of all that you see art created by a human being um, there's art on the walls of every house and every member of our family every apartment and uh, you know most of it was created either by my grandfather or by my uh, my aunt Kitty my grandfather is so is so central uh, to my life, to who I am. He's such a an enormous part, uh, just you know, of my experience of being alive. And uh, really, I'm sure in ways that I don't that I don't even yet realize. I mean, and he was not a perfect man, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. But I never heard him yell at anybody. Uh, you know, I never heard him raise his voice, and certainly never raise a hand. I'm not sure if he ever did that ever in his life. And he was just he was just an incredibly kind, you know, generous person. You know, for whatever flaws he had and everybody has them, I don't think he had any of the the major ones. <laughs> you know, um he didn't drink, he wasn't unkind to his wife. Um you know, he didn't steal money, he didn't gamble. Uh he didn't cheat on anybody. I mean, he just he was just like your typical kind of upstanding citizen and I I don't think that those people actually were typical. And so I think that 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 makes him very special. I wish you could have met him. It's very hard for me to think that I'll never talk to him again. I I still can't can't really believe um can't really believe that that's true. I don't know. It's the same, you know, it's the same with both my grandparents. I'm talking about my grandfather because of the musical connection. I feel the same way, you know, about my grandmother. But it's it's a huge loss. I'm so glad that they were that they were alive to meet my kids and my kids, you know, got old enough that they'll remember them. Certainly my six year old Bernie will remember them and uh my three year old John I think will remember them too, although, you know, more fuzzily, but they were really they were really uh, both my grandparents just to 
an amazing thing to have um, in my life, an amazing, amazing force to have in my life. Uh, and I'm extremely grateful for them. Well, I think I've, I've told you a lot about him, and um, I hope you get some sense of what an amazing person he is. And, you know, the fact that the 99 episodes of this show preceding this one and the several hundred interviews I did before I did this show and the, you know, years I did uh, of performance on the stage and, you know, my years in radio... I don't know if any of that would ever have happened if it hadn't been for my grandfather. Maybe every bit of it would. I I have no idea. But I can tell you for sure that uh, the way it happened and the the innate amount of joy and passion that I take um, from music and from this music in particular, all of that, every every piece of that comes from him. And I'm very, very, very grateful for that. So we're going to sign off uh, much in the way we began with another piece from the, the Stan Kenton and Hi-Fi record. And uh, I thank you for listening. And since you didn't get a chance, uh, most of you who are hearing this, um, to meet Grandpa, I hope you get a chance uh, or get get the sense uh, of the man that he was. I hope that you, like me, are striving in your own life you know, to recreate as best you can the kind of love uh, that someone gave to you.
Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.